This is Curious Minnesota, a Star Tribune project that sends staff from the state's largest newsroom hunting for the answers to great questions we receive from you, our readers. We're here to answer everything you want to know about the state's people, places, and culture. Welcome to Curious Minnesota. I'm your host, Eric Roper. We've talked previously on this podcast about Minnesota's dominance over the flour milling and lumber industries in this country. Today, we're talking about another industry that was once heavily influenced by Minnesota companies, computing, specifically supercomputing. A handful of Minnesota companies once designed the fastest computers in the world. But as with flour and lumber, Minnesota's reign as the supercomputing state wouldn't last. Reader Ted Adams asked Curious Minnesota why Minnesota's computing industry largely faded from the spotlight, despite the growth of the computing industry overall. We're talking today with Evan Ramstead, who wrote about this topic for Curious Minnesota. Well, Evan, thank you so much for joining us. So first of all, you're going to be our new business columnist starting on January 1. That's right. And uh, when can people read your column? We are on Sundays and Wednesdays, online and in print. All right. Very exciting. And so you graciously joined Curious Minnesota to do this story. (laughs) Basically, the question was, you know, what happened to our computer industry in the Twin Cities? So let's set the scene here for people who are less familiar with the topic, and I was less familiar before we got into this. You know, why should people care about Minnesota's computer industry? It sounds like we were kind of a big deal for a period, and we love here on this podcast talking about the exceptionalism of Minnesota, even if uh, some of our industries are no longer as prominent as they once were, whether it's flour milling, lumber, or computers. Right. Well... Minnesota was the epicenter of supercomputers in in the 19 late 60s, 1970s into the 80s and still had with Cray the dominant supercomputing company, you know, into the 90s even. And these are the fastest computers in the fastest world. Fastest and biggest computers in the world. Correct. Wow. They they often cost millions of dollars, sometimes over 10 million dollars. There's not a lot of them in use. There's not many customers for them. They are still made today. They're made differently, Mm -hmm. Um, but they are still made just by a few companies. And you hear from time to time, you know, some research lab, government research lab has now bought one and has just accomplished this feat, you know. You're talking um, about supercomputers generally. Supercomputers generally, correct. Right, right. But, you know, it's used by the weather service uses supercomputers, right, keeping track of Okay. data on every place on the yeah. globe, right? And as we'll talk about, I mean, this, the personal computer sort of supersedes this later in this story. But th- th- so there's a distinction between these two types of things, essentially. Right. So we have to go back in time as we do with these stories. So in this case, we're going to go to just after World War II is where this tale begins. Right. What's sort of the impetus for Minnesota getting into the computer business? Well, Computers back in the war were human people, were mm-hmm. people. Okay. They were people who <laughs> made the calculations to try to break codes. Okay. And they were known as computers because they were computing. Oh, so these are people whose, whose Be- title is title a computer. was computer. Oh, got exactly. it. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And uh, you can see this on some old movies, you know, yeah. from time to time. And it was actually in the UK where the first mechanical computer was used to break a, a German code. Mm-hmm. And in the US, code breaking was the first thing that a mechanical computer was really sought for. 
even when they were making the atom bomb and and stuff, you know, they were still doing math with slide rules and, oh, okay. and sheets of paper and stuff. Yeah. They were not using mechanical yeah. computers. So after the war, uh, some of the people involved in code breaking in the Defense Department. Minnesotans. Well, no, they were not Minnesotans, actually. But a, a Minnesota businessman who had been a military contractor mm-hmm. heard that these code breakers wanted a place to work and okay. needed a business, needed some money around them because they wanted to try to build machines to break codes in the in the way that the British had and and that was clearly what America needed to do in the Cold War. Okay. Because now we're talking about the Russians, right? I mean, right. we need to right. break right. those gotta codes. Wor- we got to worry about a whole new prospective enemy. So this businessman named was John Parker. He had been building gliders in St. Paul f- mm-hmm. that were used by the Army Air Force in the war. Now he has this big factory. He doesn't know what to do with it. He's looking for other uses. And he hears about this code breakers who need a home. So okay. he says, hey, come, come to Minnesota and let me build a business with you. Right. And so they did. And the first years were kind of rocky because there's not a lot of, they were, they were innovating. They were trying to get the machine to work. Mm-hmm. And, but they were also looking for other revenue. So they went into all kinds of other businesses. And this is Engineering Research Associates. Correct. That's very, the name uh, of the company. Maybe intentionally vague name. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Because <laughs> right. they're doing lots of things, right? Is right, that the idea? Right. Okay. Right. But this is sort of the original company that ends up spawning the legacy of many companies. Minnesota, correct. From ERA as it became known, there were uh, two really important companies that came out. One was uh, Univac and, and the second was Control Data. And Control Data rose to become the biggest company in uh, Minnesota for many years there in the 1960s and early 70s, it employed about 20,000 or more people at one point. Right, right. And it was building not just supercomputers, but it was building mainframe computers, kind of the smaller computers that were sold, starting to be in high volumes in the 1960s to businesses and to governments and right. such. And but so I, I, yeah. IBM was the dominant maker of those mainframes. Okay. And, and companies like Univac and, and Control Data were kind of distant in third or fourth place with IBM leading. Oh, but them. we were the number we were leading on supercomputers but not mainframe computers correct so so to distinguish themselves these Minnesota companies kind of took a step up and Mm -hmm. focused on the more niche market but with the university here and with other resources around the Midwest you know it was it was kind of a place that became a kind of a hotbed for uh, this type of research and innovation mathematics and the budding discipline of computer science so why would someone need a supercomputer these are like millions of dollars, right? These aren't cheap investments. Who's buying these enormous computers? You, they fill entire rooms. Right. What are they for? Well, they're for doing calculations that required very intensive or lots and lots of numbers. And so in the early years, it was the military and it was like, the National Weather Service or mm-hmm. the ancestor to the National Weather Service. And these applications were very specialized. It wasn't the kind of thing that any ordinary person would come across in their life. Right. It was the very, very start of people using machines to calculate and to understand things that weren't really possible before because you would have to do so many numbers or so many repeated calculations over and over and over again yeah. to get the result you were seeking. Okay. This is the other interesting part is that there's lots of people in the Twin Cities who are literally manufacturing these things. I mean, we have a photo in the story of someone who's standing inside one of these original computers. You know, there's a lot of stuff in there. But what was it like to work at one of these companies? 
the workers actually building the circuitry were mainly women. Mm-hmm. What they were doing was running little wires from one sort of clip to another, right? Mm-hmm. They, they were creating circuits. Mm-hmm. And there would be a switch on either end to go on and off. And, you know, calculations are made by the series of circuits going in a sequence on and off mm-hmm. and representing a character or representing a string of characters or a calculation. And why are they all mostly women doing this? Because wires, they're small and fine, and the Mm -hmm. perception was that women had greater dexterity in their hands. Interesting. Okay. But basically, there's manufacturing plants in the Twin Cities. I mean, is this thousands of people we're talking about? Yeah, thousands of people. I mean, both Control Data and Cray actually had their largest plants not too far away from the Twin Cities, but in Chippewa Falls, Wisconsin. Okay. But there was manufacturing here, too. Yes, of course. Um, Right. Okay. So with any one of these stories, uh, whether it's flour milling, logging, or now computing. We have to hit the apex. When do we hit our peak? When are we really hitting our stride as like Minnesota's top of the game here? The early 70s and uh, with Cray even a little bit later. Cray's success in supercomputing stretched into the 90s, uh, really. But for control data and for Univac, Univac eventually gets you know bought and kind of merged into other companies. But control data's uh, apex was in the 1970s. Okay. So the question had to do with why we didn't keep up. And, you know, it seems like it's a Kodak story where, you know, we're leading an industry and then suddenly we're not really a big part of that industry anymore. So we have to start with a little company called Intel, right? Is that where the sort of story begins there? Exactly. What our reader noted was he just wondered why these three companies would fall away at the moment when computers were really taking off. It's because of Intel, uh, which took those big wired circuits that, you know, the thousands of circuits that people were wiring together in these cabinets that filled up rooms, as you described. Mm -hmm and put it into a small little chip, basically the size of your thumbnail, right? Okay. And this is a microprocessor. The microprocessor. Now, at the start, when they first did this in 1969, that microprocessor did not have hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of circuits in right. it, you know? And so it wasn't very powerful. It couldn't do very much. What were uh, they using it for? I mean, well, you know, initially. Intel's first customer, the customer that asked Intel to build this, was an adding machine company in Japan okay. that wanted to build what we now call a calculator. Okay. And Intel's second little innovation or, or thought of what to do with the microprocessor was to create a digital watch. Okay. Um, so these Minnesota companies are like, yeah, this is pretty this basic. Is, this is very basic, <laughs> yeah. Well, there's not, and more importantly, it's very cheap. You, yeah. You know, relative to, you know, that adding machine calculator cost a few hundred dollars to put on a desk, where Control Data and all these companies are selling computers for a million dollars or right. more. And that's a lot more money back then than it it is today, right? right? Yeah. And but, so, are, but are other computer companies starting, I mean, the ones that stuck around, were they starting to take notice or does it, it, it wait till the advancement of the microprocessor a little bit? It does take a few years. The first desktop computers from IBM was kind of the late 70s, early 80s. The first Apple computer was the, what, 76 or 77? You, you mm-hmm. know, they could process words, basically, and do some math and, and stuff. Right. You know, but spreadsheets hadn't been invented for them yet. Or, you, mm-hmm. you know, no great business application. Nobody in the 1970s at Control Data or Univac or anybody was worried about losing a banking customer mm-hmm. or a government customer to Apple or any right. 
forerunner of of that personal yeah. computer industry. But at some point, it must have become apparent that they maybe had missed the wave, you know, or something like that. Yes, there were efforts to use microprocessors in what they call a parallel way to kind of string them all together mm-hmm. to try to get up to the level of uh, supercomputers. And it just wasn't working at the time. You know, mm-hmm. it took years for that innovation to really, right. um, you know, come along and stuff. And so it made no financial sense. Right. It's a different a, business model. Exactly. I mean, exactly. One is, I mean, what became common was sort of the computer that you and I might buy and the smartphone and stuff. And that's just a different business than what these companies were doing. They maybe had the option to pivot, but they didn't. It would have required a wholesale change in what they were doing, right? We, we had a reader write a letter to the editor who compared it to the auto industry and said, mm-hmm. you know, there's the Ferraris of the world and then there's the Toyotas of the world. And the Control Datas and, and Cray, Super Computer, and Univac, what they were doing was kind of like Ferrari kind of level, very specialized, very expensive yeah. type of computers. Okay. So one nice thing about writing about recent history is that the, a lot of people are still alive who lived through this. And also there's a lot of nostalgia and loyalty to these companies. And a lot of them weighed in on the comments of the story. I mean, there were more than 200 comments on this story and a bunch of people also emailed you. So what were we hearing out there from people? I mean, it was just interesting to see. One of the commenters noted how interesting the comments were. Yeah, the com- the comments were kind of better than the story. <laughs> no, know? I don't think so. But well, people, no, should, th- people should check out the comments I, for sure. I mean, I love it when something like that sparks dialogue. And, and you know, that's the power of mass media at times mm-hmm. is to, you know, spark a community discussion like right. that. It was lovely to see. And right. I think what a lot of people were doing was kind of recollecting the joy, the ebullience of being part of something that was at the cutting edge, so exciting. You know, it was a time when there's a lot of money in those companies and it was like so unique. You know, the state of Minnesota until this moment, its businesses were agriculture and mining and lumber and finance. You know, we had right. banks in, right. in, in the two cities, right? And this launched a whole different realm. Mm -hmm. I mean, it helped spawn the computer science department at the University of Minnesota and other colleges around the the state. Which had a role in the creation of the Internet. Internet. And still today, you you know, the U has its own fab in it for kids to learn how to make chips and and such. And you you also talk in the story about how today's, I mean, we are still a leader in the medical technology field and that that sort of has its legacy in these companies. Absolutely. It was the same entrepreneurial zeal. It's the same investors and finance people who are looking at the computing industry in the 1960s who are suddenly are like, hey, what can electronics do in healthcare? Mm -hmm. And that helped fund what is now, you know, one of the leading med tech industries in the world. Right. And so, uh, are these companies just totally gone, or is there some relics out there or some vestigial parts of them? Yeah, not, nothing ever totally goes away, you know, okay. in, in business. People <laughs> people find ways, you know, even, even as a business fades away, the assets that are worthwhile, that have value, find their way into other businesses that get sold or, or resold or, or what have you. And, you know, we have uh, two chip manufacturers down near the Mall of America that both got their start making chips for control data. Uh, One is called Polar and the other is called Skywater. 
And actually, we also have one of the direct descendants of control data software called Ceridian mm -hmm. uh, CRM, which is near where the control data headquarters used to be down yep, near they, the Mall of America. Oh, oh, so it's a big Bloomington thing. Right? Yeah, all, yeah, all <laughs> out there around the Mall of America is, okay. is where... So you can go shopping and take in some computing history. You can history. take in some computing history. Yeah, the, the, control, <laughs> the former control data headquarters is now um, office towers for health partners. Oh, interesting. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Well, Evan, this is so interesting and we're all very excited to read your column. And so I'm sure you'll be writing on topics like this and other things. Yeah, right? business tales and controversies and tensions and a little bit of nostalgia like this too, for sure. Awesome. Well, Sundays and Wednesdays, right? That's right. Perfect. All right. Thanks so much, Evan. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks. Okay, that's it for today's show. As always, we want to hear your questions and feedback at curious at startribune.com. And a big thanks to Matt Gilmer, who recently began editing this podcast. We hope his help will allow us to bring you more shows in 2023. And if you're liking this show, please tell a friend about it. We really appreciate your help spreading the word. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Curious Minnesota. We want to hear from you. Ask questions and read more stories online at startribune.com backslash curious. Our show is recorded at the Star Tribune's headquarters in beautiful downtown Minneapolis. And our music is produced by Matt Gilmer. If you like the show, please rate us on iTunes or leave a review. And until next time, stay curious. <laughs>